So thank you for everybody. <clears throat> thank you to everybody for tuning in or attending virtually. <clears throat> uh, we are continuing tonight with our exploration of <clears throat> Rosh Chodesh. And in the last two weeks, we covered some of the pre-Rosh Chodesh uh, liturgies, such as Birkat uh, Levana and Hachrazat Rosh Chodesh. So Hachrazat Rosh Chodesh is the thing you do that the, the men do in shul. After Kriyat Sefer Torah on Shabbat, they, they announced that the, new, that the Rosh Chodesh is going to be that week. While the Berkat Levana is a bracha that we discussed last week, like a Berkat Shvach, which we say every month upon the, the seeing of the Molad. And for the next uh, maximum 16 days afterwards, we say that bracha. So last week we discussed Berkat Levana and all the, the bracha itself and all the liturgies revolving around the, that developed around <coughs> Berkat Levana. This week we're going to continue more into Rosh Chodesh, but not Rosh Chodesh itself, Erev Rosh Chodesh. So there are <coughs> a family of liturgies that developed around Erev Rosh Chodesh, which most Sfaradim will not be too familiar with. So this week I was in Yeshiva and I, I uh, it was not this week, it was last week I suppose, and they were uh, trying to assemble a minyan for Yom Kippur Katan. And I was there doing some, some learning and I was thinking to myself like why, like, why do they do this again? Like why did Ashkenazim do Yom Kippur Katan again? Then suddenly I realized, I'm like, oh no, we're going to have to learn Yom Kippur Katan because the Ashkenazim really do have this minhag of, of Erev Rosh Chodesh, of having a special mincha for Erev Rosh Chodesh. So it's not something that we could ignore. And I went down the rabbit hole of um, finding out exactly what, uh, what, con- what was the source for this minhag, where it came from, why it's important, and... Um, how it relates to us today. So let's begin. So first of all, this practice of, uh, of Yom Kippur Katan, or uh, as the Ashkenazim call it, used to be called Mishmeret Rosh Chodesh or Mishmeret HaChodesh. There are still some places in Sidurim that refer to it like by that name to this day. And the Conventional wisdom is that this was an innovation of the Ramak, that this whole micro-holiday of making Erev Chodesh a serious day of atonement, and one where it's a minor Yom Kippur, comes from the Ramak. And the reason this was made famous is because there is a sefer called the Pri Chadash, written by Bichizkiah de Silva, uh, or Yechazkel, I think Chizkiah de Silva, one of the Italian-born uh, Israeli scholars uh, from the 17th century. And he wrote in the Pri Chadash, in Siman Tafyud uh, Zayin, uh, that this was indeed an innovation of the Ramak. The problem with that is that we do have sources for it earlier than the Ramak. So let me just give you some background about who the Ramak was and why exactly it should matter, because I was trying to chase and track down the geography of this uh, and looking towards the areas where I might find it, and I found it in areas where I didn't expect. So the Ramak himself was Rabbi Moshe Cordevero, uh, the famous early Kabbalist uh, from Tzifat. 
The truth is, people assume from his name Cordoviro that he was from Cordoba, which is in Spain. However, that's probably not true. He was insistent on signing his name Cordoero, which is much more likely to be Portuguese, which means rope maker. And the, the reason so many scholars, especially Kabbalistic scholars, settled in Spain in the, uh, sorry, settled in Sifat in the, in the 16th century was because of the expulsion from Spain. After the, after the Jews were expelled from Spain, certain empires like the Polish and the Ottoman uh, welcomed the Jews into their empires because they're like, hey, these are skilled trades craftsmen, they're skilled businessmen and of, of all sorts. And so the Ottomans especially, who had just conquered Eretz Israel, welcomed the Jews into their new regions uh, enthusiastically. And one of the things that the Ottomans did was that they took an area that they had just conquered in Eretz Israel called Zafat, which was basically a backwater town. No one ever lived there. It has no biblical significance at all. And they issued some tax reprieves for whoever worked in the textile industry. So special tax rates for textile merchants just to bring the Jews in because so many Jews worked in textiles back then and to this day. So the Ramak most likely came for that purpose or his family did because they were rope makers of, or they were probably uh, rope makers of some sort. And so we don't know where the Ramak grew up, but it's likely that his family was Portuguese. So if he knew of this minhag, we could trace it back to Portugal or possibly neighboring Spain. However, uh, as I was doing some survey for this, of course, one of the first places you check is Wikipedia, and some bloke decided to type in that there is a source for this in the Manot Halevi and a source for this in the Leket Yosher. But being Wikipedia, of course, everyone knows, he didn't cite his sources. So I had to go to a friend of mine in Yeshiva who had Otsar Chachma. I gave him all the keywords he needed, and lo and behold, he found it. What's incredible about finding this in the Leket Yosher is because the Leket Yosher was a Talmud of the Tumat Hadeshen, who was, they were both Austrian scholars. Yosef Yuspa Ostreicher wrote the Leket Yosher. It's a very valuable sefer. And uh, he lived in the 15th century in Austria. So for him to be aware of the Minhag of Yom Kippur Katan is absolutely astounding, especially because this was before the Ramak himself was born. The other source is from the Ramak's father-in-law, Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabetz. Some say it was his brother-in-law. He was about 20 years his senior. And Shlomo Al-Kabetz got the Tzfat before the Ramak. And the Shlomo Al-Kabetz writes this in his Sefer Manot HaLevi. And Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabetz, when he got married, when he was still living in, uh, in Greece, he wrote this sefer as a present, like a wedding present, to his father-in-law. So he must have been young, roughly 15, 29. Therefore, we know that Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kabetz himself was also well aware of, who was a great Kabbalist, was well aware of this minhag as have been being established while he lived in Greece, in Adrianopolis, in the early 16th century. So we have, so far, Austria, Greece, possibly Portugal and Spain. But we don't have any clear early root for who instituted it. Who were the early pious people who actually began to do this? But we do have some facts. We don't know exactly who began this, this uh, practice of calling it Yom Kippur Katan, but we have some facts. The first fact is that no liturgy accompanied this day at all. The original um, idea of this minor holiday was that it should be a day of fasting. And I, uh, I can read you maybe perhaps the language of, hmm, let's think. 
Uh, I don't have Menot Halevi on me. You could find this in Yisod V'Shorosh HaVodah. You could find this in a few places. But here's the language of the Shlach HaKadosh. Bekol Erev Rosh Chodesh Nikra Yom Kippurim Katan. Every Erev Rosh Chodesh is called Yom Kippurim Katan. Gam Chazarat Hanafim Koran. He says some Kabbalistic things. And he says, This is a day which is appropriate for a person to search through his deeds and to meditate on, on repentance. And more so than that, because it's like a minor Yom Kippur, it is um, appropriate to fast and to afflict oneself. And, in order to, and he should also do complete Teshuvah, and then he makes some mention of the rest of the Kabbalistic ideas behind why this is, uh, why this is important. So the Shla, already in his time in the 17th century, also was well aware of this, considered, it, considered fasting to be important. Most of the, the Mikubalim who speak about this uh, day speak about the fasting. They do not speak about any accompanying liturgies. Now, I, there was, I, I did see in... Um, uh, what's it called, in Hatefilah by Ismar Elbogen, that he believed that the Ramak brought it to Italy. And I didn't know what to make of that, because as far as we know, the Ramak had never lived in Italy. Perhaps I am mistaken, but the Ramak himself clearly never brought this, this, um, this institution to Italy, despite the pre-Hadash being Italian, or Italian-born, having known of it, I don't see any uh, evidence to say that the Ramak himself brought it to Italy, even though you might hear that around. Uh, this I do not know. What I do know, though, is that the Italians themselves, at least Italian Jewry, in the 16th and 17th centuries, were responsible for propelling uh, this practice, this uh, Yom Kippurim Katan, to its widespread popularity, as it is known today. They were the ones who really doubled down on it, they thought it was very important, they um, popularized it. And from Italy, it spread to uh, Germany, as we'll see in a moment. So, okay, so this is so much for the history itself. It is fascinating. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll discuss a little more if we can. But what is the reason for this? Why in the world do we uh, consider Erev Yom Kippur a time for kapara? So, this is all comes from a Gemara in Chulin, as well as a Gemara in uh, Shavuot, Daftetam Uralif, and in Chulin is Daftetam Uralif. So we're going to read it together, I hope, and we'll discover the fascinating story behind this. Now, from this Gemara, we're going to learn that it is not Erev Rosh Chodesh, at least in the Gemara's world, which is a time for atonement, but it's Rosh Chodesh itself. Rosh Chodesh is a time where one can receive kapara. However, since we know from the Mishnah in Ta'anit that it is not permitted to fast on Rosh Chodesh, all of those uh, atonement and repentance practices which would be appropriate to do on Rosh Chodesh, but we can't because it's a holiday, were shoved to the, were, um, uh, what's the word? pulled to, or to the day prior to Rosh Chodesh. So let's look at this Gemara together. Um, Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi Rami Ketiv. Rabbi Shimon ben Pazi contradicts two Pesukim. One says, Vayasa One says that Hashem created the two, the two big lights, 
V'chitiv, and then it says, et or hagadol, et or hakatan. And then the pasuk in Breshit says that he created the, the, the large light, and then he created the small light. So what exactly happened? Were they both large or were they both small? This is, everyone knows this Rashi. They told, they learned, everyone learned it when they were four years old. Uh, Rashi brings this Gemara. Amra yareach lefnei HaKadosh Baruch the moon said before Hashem, Ribono shel olam, efshar l'shnei melachim sheishtamshu b'keter echad. Uh, king of the uh, king of the universe, master of the universe. Is it possible that two kings should uh, should um, serve with the same crown? Amarla he said to it. He said to the moon, Okay, go and diminish yourself. Amra lefanav ribono shalom. So the 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 moon count countered to Hashem. But wait, I had a good taina. I had a good claim. I'm ita tasmi. I should be the one who diminishes myself. Amarla lechi umeshol beyomu belayla. Okay, I'll give you. Uh, I'll grant you a wish. You're going to have power by day and by night. Meaning that the moon has the ability to be shining by day and by night, but not the sun. Amrale my rabute deshraga betihira. The moon said, "What is the?" How, what is the point of having a, like a, a torch in daylight? There's no point. It's like having a flashlight in a lit room. There's no point for me to shine in the day. There's no point for it. Amarla, so he answered the moon. Uh, okay, so I'm going to give you another gift. The Jewish people are going to count using you. They're going to, they're going to have a lunar calendar and they're going to count the days and the years with you. Right, okay, so she said, okay, but that's not good enough because we can use the sun as well. So he answered, okay, so the, the tzaddikim are going, to be, are going to use your name. Yaakov is going to be called Hakaton, Hakatan because he said, Shmuel Hakatan. This means, I believe, Shmuel, the, the Tana, who was called Shmuel HaKatan, David HaKatan, David HaMelech was called, in Shmuel Hanaviv, David Hu HaKatan, So another pasuk where three great giant people were called Katan. Hashem tried all these things and he saw that the moon was not appeased, even though he gave it all these legacies and all these gifts. So what did Hashem say? Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Heviu kapara alai. Bring atonement for me, for I diminished, diminuted the moon. So, this is just uh, as it were. Hashem says, bring an atonement for me. Why is it that in the Seir, the, the goat offering of Rosh Chodesh, it says, Why does the Pasuk say it's a chatat for Hashem? For this reason, Hashem said that this goat offering, this korban, should be a uh, an atonement for me because I diminished the or diminished the moon. So fascinating enigmatic gemara, and this is jumped on in basically in Shavuot, Daf Tetamud Aleph, I believe, or Tetamud Bet. The Gemara over there mentions uh, this, this story, and the riff over there goes out of his way to say, no, it's not Alai, it's Eli, meaning that we should, we should transfer the honor that Klal Yisrael gives for the Korbanot 
that the, the, the honor of the Korbanot and the extra service done for Rosh Chodesh should be an atonement, which is an atonement for Klai Yisrael, all those extra those Korbanot which are an atonement for Klai Yisrael should be directed toward me. Okay, there's a, there's a, a number of, of uh, different explanations, for example, for exactly why, uh, let me just pull up, I had a, sorry about this, I had a couple listed, I don't have it in front of me, I'm sorry. There's a couple of explanations as to exactly how you could say that Hashem himself reaches or, or would want an atonement. If I'm remembering correctly, the Maharal said that kapara here doesn't mean atonement. It means either appeasement or wiping away. Because, um, because Hashem, uh, what's the word, allowed Klai Yisrael to achieve, to achieve atonement through Rosh Chodesh, therefore he's appeasing the moon by allowing or wiping away her complaint because he's allowing the moon to be the vehicle for the service of Hashem. Meaning, the whole point of creation is so that the Jewish people or humanity as a whole can serve Hashem. So Hashem is telling the moon, you don't have to serve me directly. The Jewish people will be able to do teshuvah because of you, through you, um, every month. Uh, and that should be enough appeasement that the Jewish people are doing service through you and therefore your service that you lost will be made up for through the Jewish people. So that's the, that's the general theological idea for that. However, the Nikubalim have a lot deeper understanding of this story. This story is very, very mystical. And there's an entire chapter in the Ramak's own Sefer, Pardes Rimonim, uh, Perak Yudchet, which dives deeply into what this means, that this, there's the, this conversation between the, the Shemesh and the Yareach, and just to use the higher level world, words, there's partsufim of, of Malchut and Tiferet, and there's two separate powers which complement each other. And Hashem's, uh, what's called, let's call it, manipulation of those powers at an early stage of creation caused many, many different consequences, including the Chet of Adam Harishon, including the differences between Din and Rachamim. And therefore, the, Mikubal, the Mikubalim call this miyut hayareach. Uh, they, they, they speak about it as a, as a, as a term to refer to uh, this process that began early on in, in creation. And it's a very important idea between the relationship of the sefirot, in Kabbalistic terms, the relationship between the sefirot of Malchut and Teferet, or the partsufim, uh, those two partsufim. And that's, that's what those words mean, that the two melachim should be mishtamesh beketer achad. These are all mystical, uh, mystical ideas. And to some degree, the Mekubalim say that, that fasting on Erev Rosh Chodesh is almost in place of the Sa'ir. It's in place of this Korban, uh, a Sa'ir, which is brought La Hashem. Because we don't have it, we fast instead in order to achieve this same atonement. So at the end of the day, we have this uh, heavily mystical idea that, uh, that Hashem programmed into Rosh Chodesh a form of power to allow for kapara. And this power of kapara, um, we draw upon on Erev Rosh Chodesh. Now, some of the Mikubalim, like in the Yisod V'Shorosh HaVodah, use a lot of similar language to how Tikkun Chatzot works. Um, and we, we all, we studied a long time ago this idea of Tikkun Chatzot, that there's a cycle of the Shekhinah's drawing uh, the different parts of him and Shemayim that, that the Shekhinah continuously is in exile. And so when the moon waxes and wanes, it represents 
the uh, the Shekhinah Bigaluta, which is Kabbalistic terms for the for the divine presence, which is in exile after the destruction of the temple. And so, just like Tikkun Chatzot has this uh, idea of joining the pain of the Shekhinah, that it is in exile, they use the very same terminologies here. That because the moon is waning, this represents how in Shemayim the Shekhinah. Malchut, in other words, is in exile, and therefore we feel the pain of the Shekhinah, and that has an immense power. That's, that's, that's that other uh, lean that they take to it. Now, regardless, we see, okay, that it is a day of atonement, and let's now look at, look at a little bit how it developed. So that Rizal himself gives a slightly confusing language to when one should practice it, because he says that it should be Erev the Molad. He uses slightly confusing language. So it, there's a, a dispute among the Kabbalists whether or not Erev Yom Kippur, uh, sorry, the Yom Kippur Katan should actually be Erev Rosh Chodesh or it should be the day before the, the, the Molad, right? The, the Molad. And so today the practice is mostly kept by the Ashkenazim and their minhags to do it Erev Rosh Chodesh. However, there were plenty of Mikubalim who understood it the other way, only to be, uh, like the Ramah, um, he, he understood it only to be, or I mean Ramah Mipano, that it should be after the, the Erev, the Molad, not Erev Rosh Chodesh. So if the Molad is the day before Rosh Chodesh, then it's Erev, Erev Rosh Chodesh when we do Yom Kippur Katan. So originally this day, as I said, was, was, uh, was um, designated for fasting, and there was no specific liturgy that was necessary. However, um, less than 50 years after the death of the Ramak, when he died very young uh, in, in Tzfat, one of the interesting things about the history of Tzfat is that in, from like the year roughly 1500 to 1580, it saw a complete, uh, an enormous boom of incredible, incredible scholarship from the, the greatest minds Jewish history has ever seen. And uh, you had a Yosef Cairo there, Shlomo Kavetz, the Ramak, the Ramchal, but all of that came to a close in roughly 1580 when there was a big plague and many, many people died, including many Mikubalim, and there was also an earthquake. So it was a terrible year, and basically Tzifat was done. But the legacy of Tzifat uh, carried on for many, many generations. Anyway, so less than 50 years after their Mach passed away, the first collection of liturgies for this day was uh, put together in Italy. I believe the year was Shin, uh, Shin Peivav, so roughly 396 years ago. That would be, uh, I guess, 1626, 1625, something, something of that of that nature. Now, uh, I'll, I'll check my math later. <laughs> it isn't the point. Sorry. All right. So. Uh, a, there was a scholar of Jewish liturgy who passed away in 1972. His name was Daniel Goldschmidt. He did some terrific work on tracking down, um, I'm holding here his uh, roughly 16 pages of research, tracking down all the different pamphlets, which began in Italy and then basically evolved and evolved and evolved uh, from Italy to uh, Germany onward and outward. So I have some notes here. The first one was called Sha'arei Dima by Rabbi Abraham Giriani. He was the Shliach Tzibor in Yerushalayim in 1625. That's the first, I'm sorry, I said it was Italy. No, the first one was in, in, in Yerushalayim. I was wrong. Um, most of the subsequent development was in Italy. And the thing that was unique about these uh, collections was that they originally had Slichot and all these other prayers, both for Shachrit and for Mincha. 
And in Italy, this was especially true. They had many, many slichot for both shachrit and mincha. There were various pamphlets, various different kuntrasim, but for the most part, it was, there was equal part shachrit, equal part mincha. Eventually, when the collections arrived in Germany, uh, they even in Italy, they printed more books than they printed in, in Germany originally. Um, the pamphlets that became popular in Germany were the ones specifically for mincha. And therefore, the Ashkenazim till today observe Yom Kippur Khatan mostly by doing slichot, uh, mincha time. And the collection that became most favored was the uh, collection from the Sidur called Sharei Tzion, from Avnasinata of Hanover. Avnasinata of Hanover was a, was a pretty famous rav because for many reasons, he wrote a couple of Sfarim, but he also is famous for writing a sefer called Yevon Mitsula, which is a chronicle of the, I forgot how to pronounce this, Chmelnetsky Rebellion. I forgot precisely how to pronounce that, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, that's a famous Gzerot Tachvitat, the horrible massacres that happened against the Jews of Ukraine, of Ukraine, and where tens of thousands of Jews were wiped out. So he wrote the uh, first-hand uh, story of, of why these decrees happened, exactly what the rebellion was about and how the Jews uh, passed, uh, were, were murdered. But that's why he's famous. And his Sidur uh, had a lot of influence. Now, if you look, uh, according to Goldschmidt, and I didn't, I honestly, this is probably representative of 50 hours of his research, if not more, maybe he spent time in, 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 in museums and God knows where. But he, um, according to him, the the collection in Sharitzion is basically the Italian uh, development. However, they brought in a lot of influence by using Ashkenazi pew team more than Italian pew team. From that point onward, many pamphlets were, were printed with a similar collection, and that's why you have today, eventually in the art scroll, the collection that you see here. This is basically the development of 300 years of pamphlet after pamphlet, sidur after sidur, and a uh, copy and paste, and eventually everybody put together some form of standardized, quasi-standardized liturgy for the mincha. Now, if you look at the beginning, I won't go through all of it. There's a lot of kel, melech, hoshev, achamim, right, as everyone's familiar from the slichot, ve'yavor, there's piyutim, there's slichot, finally they do a vidui of binisim uh, ga'on, right, the, everyone knows that long vidui that you say on Yom Kippur. So, uh, a short, basically, this, this is about a 25, 20 minute slichot. What is interesting about all the collections is that you'll find the first piyut is an Italian piyut. And this is, again, as I explained the history, because it was dominated by, this, by the Italians originally before it became popular in, in, uh, before it became popular in Germany, therefore, it is the, uh, the first piyut is an Italian piyut. The piyut goes as follows, Yom zeh, Today should be uh, the, the measuring of my sins. Uh, it should be, uh, they should be nullified in their insignificance as the, the moon itself has waned. So this was written by somebody named Yehuda Ariemi Modina, who is known also as Leon de Modina. He was a very, very interesting rabbi who lived in Venice. Um, I, he, there are no words, really. He was so many things. He was uh, a writer. He was a poet. He was 
uh, craftsman. He was an interpreter. He was a, a gambler, he said. In his own autobiography, he, he confesses ha having been having an addiction to gambling, which is so fascinating in its raw um, honesty and candor. And he all different types of professions he tried doing, making amulets for people. Leon de Modena was a fascinating rabbi. Um, if anyone has time, check out. He has, yes, a Wikipedia page, but there are also some books written about Leon de Modena. And uh, he did try his hand at poetry, and he wrote a piyut specifically for Erev Yom uh, Erev Rosh Chodesh, which is called Yom Kippur Katan. Because he lived only in the 17th century, uh, this was late enough to have, to have written a piyut specifically for this, uh, for this day. It is pretty much, it is a very nice piyut. Um, he is not so well known uh, otherwise besides this piyut. So if anyone wants to take a, uh, take a peek at his, his life and his legacy, uh, it's very much an interesting uh, Google search away. One of his biggest contributions was writing a sefer about the minhagim of Jews, of, of the Jewish people, or the customs of Jews for a Christian audience. He wanted the Christians to understand what Jews were doing and why. And it was actually very well received. And that actually, I believe, led to um, you know, more friendly Christian relationships with Jews. And it allowed the Jews to, to um, it helped the Jews re, uh, return to England because of the, the good PR which his, which his book uh, uh, created. Regardless, um, this, was, this is the piyut that the Ashkenazim say, because obviously it is one of the few, if not only, piyutim written specifically for this day. It is a nice one, and hopefully it is still said because it inspires people. The other piyutim are mostly Ashkenazi, they're mostly German in origin. Some of them are just borrowed from ancient piyutim that were used on, in the Yamim Noraim, and therefore they found their way, um, and therefore they found their way into the collection uh, of the Yom Kippur Katan in the art scroll or in various sidurim that you'll find. Now, it is ironic that the Sephardim themselves never developed a liturgy or a lasting liturgy at all for this day. The Sephardim just ignored that entire idea completely. And um, they only do, uh, to this day, people who follow this idea of Yom Kippur Katan only do the fasting. They don't do anything else. And the Kafachaim actually mentions, he's like, and by the way, you should know that fasting once every 30 days is also healthy. It's a healthy thing to do, but you should only do it for its own Hashem. This is very typical of Kafachaim. And incredibly, in, in, I saw in, in, in the Sefer Atarat Avot, he said that in Morocco, the practice was also adopted by women. There were many women who would also fast on, on Erev Yom Kippur because women have a special connection to Rosh Chodesh both Kabbalistically and historically. So the women in Morocco would also fast on Erev Rosh Chodesh. But today, history has a, has a way of making fun of itself. The Ashkenazim completely forgot about the original um, minhag of Erev Yom Kippur, which is to fast. They forgot about the original minhag of doing Slichot V'Shachrit and Mincha. And what eventually evolved was that the Sephardim are now doing the fasting, but no liturgies. And Ashkenazim are doing a liturgy, but only for Mincha, Erev Yom Kippur. And I don't know of any Ashkenazim today who are fasting Erev Yom Kippur. I'm sure maybe somebody does it, but I have not found, um, I have not found, uh, I've not met those people. It is possible, but I've not met them. I spent most of my life in yeshiva circles, so I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the idea of making a minion for Yom Kippur Khatan. I am not aware of people, of people fasting. If you look in this uh, sidur here, this is the famous Livorno Bet Obed Sidor, which I'm holding in my hands here. 
um, you can see that in uh, the Sephardic communities, uh, which Rabbi, uh, what was his name again, Rabbi Yehuda Ashkenazi was writing this Sidor for, many of the Sephardic communities, both Syrian and Moroccan, were familiar enough in, this, in the time that this Sidor was printed, I think it was roughly about 200 years ago, Enough, uh, enough people were f- familiar and, and it was, a, it was a common enough practice to fast Arab Yom Kippur among the Sephardim that he has a page of halachot for this fast. And for example, what would happen if you have 10 people in the, bit, in the Beit HaKnesset who are all fasting for Yom Kippur Katan? Would you take out a Sefer Torah? Would you say Anenu? When do you start the fast? Do you have to be Mechabalit the, the day before by Mincha? Etc. Etc. So... Clearly, this minhag, after 400 years, developed its own normativity, and it became established. So we're discussing it because it has liturgical value. It is definitely said by the Ashkenazim. If anybody wants um, to get uh, a much more nuanced, if anyone here has strong interest, a much more nuanced and detailed work of scholarship on how the liturgy is developed, you better best serve to do a Google search. Look for Daniel Goldschmidt. Um, I think the article is called... So uh, that, that's a valuable resource, and that uh, covers it for the moment. And we're going to continue now with the next obvious thing to begin with for Erev Rosh Chodesh. And the next obvious thing to begin with, leaving the Ashkenazim tonight in the dust, is uh, for the Sfaradim, Barachinavshi. And Ashkenazim won't know what we're talking about, but the Sfaradim, we know what we're talking about, and that is Erev Rosh Chodesh, at least the night before we say, before Rosh Chodesh, right before we do our Vit, where we're going to say Ya'alevi Avo, we say Tehilim Kuf Dalid, which is Barachin Avshiyat Hashem, before Arvit. Ashkenazim are familiar with saying this in Shachrit alone, only in Shachrit after Kriyat Torah or after the Shir Shalyom. So where does this come from? Why do we say Barachin Avshi Erev Rosh Chodesh? So the Gemara in Sukkot, and Dafnun Dalid Amubet, says that there was a Shir Shahiyolavim Omrim Al Aduchan. There, right, we know that the, the, Levims, the, the Levites said a, shir, uh, a song every day in the temple, in the Beit HaMikdash. It does specify that there was a special, a special shir for Rosh Chodesh. There was a special song for Rosh Chodesh, but it doesn't specify which one, frustratingly. Now, in the Mesechet Sofrim, there is a girsa, according to the Vilna Gaon, according to the Gra, that their shir, their song, was Mizmor, Mizmor uh, and also he mentions he mentions two those are the two songs they would sing according to the Gra if you look in the Sefer Ochot Chaim he's the next earliest source for this he asserts that the that the um, shir that the Levim would say for Rosh Chodesh was not uh, and by the way, why Shir Chadash? Also because it says Nagim B'Truah inside the Shir. And we know that Tiruot were, were, were played in the Beit HaMikdash, were, were blown in the Beit HaMikdash for Rosh Chodesh, as the Pasuk says. And so he believes that, that's, that, was the, those, that was the Shir that they would sing. The tour says that in, in Spain, the custom was to say this in Shachrit, after Asheu Balatzion, after Kriyat Torah, they would, they would say Barachin Afshiyat Hashem on Rosh Chodesh, why? Because this uh, Tehillim is associated with, with Rosh Chodesh. Why? Because the Pasuk says, inside this uh, Tehillim, and therefore it is associated with Rosh Chodesh. Now, this wasn't the universal, universal custom. Um, for example, if you look in uh, Aram Soba, 
the early uh, the early Aram Soban uh, Nusach, they would say Mizmor uh, Chet and they would say Mizmor Tzadi Chet on Erev Rosh Chodesh. They would not say Mizmor Kuftalid. So this wasn't really the the universal custom to 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 say Baruchin Avshi until the Shulchan Aruch uh, came along and he paskined like the tour and he said that Baruchin Avshi is the Mizmor associated with Rosh Chodesh and therefore. The Ashkenazim as well also took upon this idea to say Barachin Afshi after Shachrit. However, bringing, saying uh, Barachin Afshi before Arvit, that's unique to the Sfaradim. There is this long-standing tradition uh, to say, like before Yom Tov, right before Pesach and before Shavuot and before Sukkot, right before we start Arvit on any of those holidays, we start with a Mizmor that has to do with that holiday. And so Rosh Chodesh is no exception, and the Aram Soba had theirs, and the uh, Sfaradim naturally evolved this minhag to add Barachin Afshi. We don't know exactly when. Um, my suspicion is it's probably about as old as 300 years. It could, I have not found an earlier source than that. Uh, the earliest Sidur I found, and this was maybe uh, my weakness of research, was a Sidur from 1826, actually the American Portuguese Sidur from 1826. Uh, they have it already. They have Barachin Afshi before Arvit. So clearly it was well established at least uh, 200 years ago, but probably more, more so, around 300 years ago, they already established this minhag to say Barachin Afshi before Arvit. There is some discussion about this because the Arizal um, is reported as having never said Tehillim before Arvit. He would only say V'hurachum Avon. However, the Chemdat Yamim points out, it's a Sefer, he points out that Barachin Afshi is probably an exception. Why? He says, the Zohar speaks about Barachin Afshi. And the Zohar says in Midrash HaNe'elam that every Rosh Chodesh, the Neshamot of Tzadikim, the souls of the righteous, come before Hashem and they sing Barachin Afshi at Hashem. May my soul bless my Creator. And it's interesting that actually it speaks about the Partuf of Yaakov over there, which is Tiferet. So clearly the Zohar is speaking about, he says it clearly that every Rosh Chodesh, um, the souls of the righteous, praise Hashem with this mizmor, and therefore, as Rosh Chodesh is entering, it is appropriate to begin with this mizmor of Barachin Afshi. So that is the, the, later, um, the later development of it, and it, re- it remained as such. Now the last thing we'll discuss regarding Erev Rosh Chodesh, before calling it a night, is the idea of saying it in shul, at night in shul by Arvit, Everybody finishes Amen, and then there's Kaddish. And then after Kaddish, sorry, and then after Kaddish, as we all know, there's always going to be some guy or some kid who yells out, or Rosh Chodesh, right? The problem is, isn't that a hefsek? You're, you just finished Kaddish, you're about to start. Uh, why, how can you yell out Rosh Chodesh or yell out Yalevi'avo? You just said Kaddish and you're about to start Shemona Esrei. So you might think this is something recent and that uh, that guy in your shul, he's, he's the guy who started it and he's not very smart, so you know, we could just shush him and go on with our lives. But it's not that, it's, it's not that recent. Um, it's actually a very, very, very old minhag. It goes back all the way to the Shailot and Tishvot of the Rashba. The Rashba was asked, asked this question in Chelek Aleph, Tishuva Reish Tzadi Gimel. He was asked about this and he paskin, no, it is not a hafsek. Because it is called the Tzorech Tefillah, it is done out of necessity for the Tefillah, it's done in order to remind people not to, to, to say Ya'alevi Avo, 
Um, it is done to remind the women, for example, not to work. The Shibole Haleket also addresses this question in, in Kufayin. And he says that it's because it's Lutzor HaTefilal, it's Lutzor HaMoed, it's not considered to have sick. Furthermore, uh, there's uh, more of a reason not to be a hefsek because we know that by arvit, halachically speaking, and this is a, a tangent, but halachically speaking, we don't have to be somech geula You don't have to uh, immediately place ga'al Yisrael right next to Hashem Sefatai Tiftach, and therefore there's more leeway by arvit. And so therefore, the, this custom of saying Yalevi Avo out loud or Rosh Chodesh is permissible. Don't get too mad at the guy next to you. Um, in shul, and this custom does go very far back, and it was approved by the Rishonim. So Bezrat Hashem, next week we'll continue with the discussion of Rosh Chodesh itself. Uh, we'll do Yalev Yavo and maybe Hallel. And um, uh, thank you everybody, everybody for your patience, your endurance, and hopefully we will continue next week. So.